Amen. Thank you, Austin. So, good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning on this kind of dreary, rainy day. Uh, we're continuing in a series, as Austin just said. Uh, we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. We think it's a timely thing to do, but we're using John, uh, excuse me, re- using James's letter to the churches uh, to kind of make our way through that list. And so, you'll see printed for you in your worship folder. Uh, we're going to read from Galatians chapter five. And then from James chapter 1, just a few verses there, and then into chapter 2. So we continue to bounce around uh, James's letter. It'll be printed for you. It's printed for you. It'll be on the screen behind me. It'll be on your screen at home together as we read along. So follow along with me, if you would, beginning with the Galatians passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then from James. So be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and and, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones that, who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the laws of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. There's so much here, and we have so little time this morning, and so I'm very, um, even before we begin, I'm very discontent (laughs) with how how well we're going to cover this passage this morning, because there's a lot for us, Uh, but we're going to do our best. John Adams, uh, who probably because of the show uh, and the book by David McCullough, is one of my favorite, favorite founding fathers, he famously said, about American government. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to, gov- to the government of any other. And so what he meant by that is that American government <clears throat> is designed to give and then protect personal freedom, but it demands, the system only works, it demands, it requires of the people that they use the freedom that they're given in the constitution, not in self-indulgent ways, but toward the common good. It's only, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly what John Adams' religious views were, most likely some amalgamation of, of Protestantism and also deism. He did refer to himself as a church-going animal, so I guess he had that going for him. But that's not the point. What is the point 
is that as you look around in our society, we are becoming more and more irreligious as a culture. That's, that's obvious. It's easy to see. <clears throat> but as that happens, we are becoming less and less moral. And as we become less and less moral, you see the country beginning to unravel. Now, I want us to step right into that place and say, but that gives us a mission. To be salt and light, if you, if you believe in Jesus, to, to be salt and light by being different and standing out, not just because of what we believe, but also because of the kind of people that we are. Light is a symbol for truth, of course. Uh, and so as light, we hold out the truth because that's part of what God has called us to do. And the world needs the good news of Christianity today, maybe more than ever before. But it also needs a people who embody their beliefs in the way that they behave. And so as salt, we are meant by God to act as the preservative against the moral rotten decay that threatens our society. And the greatest gift, that's why we're doing this, that's why we're doing this series, because the greatest gift that we could give the world right now is to inject as much love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and all of those things, inject as much of that as possible into everything that, we're, that, we're, that we see going on. And so that we would become not a mirror, but a window. That's really our calling, to be a mirror, to be a window and not a mirror, because a mirror just reflects back. You know, it reflects back to the culture, its own values and priorities and so forth, but a mirror reveals a completely different way. And we're to be a people who live so differently than the prevailing culture around us that we act as a mirror, pointing people to a different way possible. We're talking about goodness this morning. That's the fruit of the Spirit that's up for today. And that word refers to virtue. It refers to moral aesthetics. A life that others find attractive or beautiful. That's literally what the word means. And so let your light shine before men, Jesus says, so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See your beautiful works. Our culture is no longer, it did at one point, but it no longer is shaping us into virtuous people. It's in fact, just the opposite. But the person who's being cultivated by God. And notice, think about the word, think about the connection between culture and cultivate there. Okay, the culture's not making, not making moral people any longer. But the person being cultivated by God, they are supernaturally good. I mean, you know, the early Christians won the world because of the kind of people they were. Uh, you know, newsflash. The early church didn't conquer the Roman Empire because they had awesome programs for families. It was their moral aesthetic. It was their goodness that was so powerful and so penetrating that the world took notice. And so that's, I think, what we're being called to here as well, to talk about goodness. And, and really, because of time constraints with the supper this morning too, we just want to just talk about two things, not our normal three. We want to see what it means to be good from this text. In small measure, again, I'm just so discontent with how much we're going to get to say. But what does it mean to be good? And, and secondly, how is it that you can become good? Because this text speaks to both of those things in pretty significant ways. And so let's just start first with the definition. Let's talk about <clears throat> definitions again of this word goodness. And I have something pretty specific in mind from James. So if you look there at the end of chapter 1 again, let me read that summary statement. It really, a lot of the commentators say that <clears throat> chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 basically outline the rest of the letter. And so it's a big statement by James. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's a famous verse. And we're going to take the adjectives there, pure and undefiled, as our description of the word goodness. What is a good life? A good life is a, a life that is pure and undefiled. And if, okay, so what does a pure and undefiled life look like? Well, James immediately begins to apply this, and he applies it in a pretty specific way in the very next chapter. He shows us what this looks like on the concrete of our life. And the very first thing he says there in chapter 2, verse 1 is, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I'm not wanting to pick a fight. I'm really not. Trust me. I would rather not deal with these issues. But we have to because it's here. And this word partiality is very important in the Bible. It comes up a lot. God shows no partiality. Paul just declares in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Later in this letter, or in the reading from this morning in verse 9, James says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so partiality is such a problem because it's a violation of neighbor love. And Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 is a master class in neighbor love. And the lesson is that loving neighbor is always expansive. It always includes more people than you think it does. It always reaches out to the person on the other side of the aisle or in the other group. That was the teaching. It includes everyone. Not just your people, not just your tribe, not just your clan, not just your group. Showing partiality is the opposite of neighbor love. Look there in verse 4. It's making distinctions among yourselves. So it's dividing the world up into us versus them and then showing favoritism to the people who look like you or believe like you and then judging and excluding others because they don't share your opinions or because they're culturally different than you are. It was a big deal in the early church. It's still a big deal in church today. Now, the example James gives was the danger of making distinctions between the rich and the poor. And this is the illustration of verses 2 through 4 here. He says, you know, the problem with this church was they were giving successful, wealthy people special privilege in the church. And the problem with this is how focused it is on external. So notice there he says people show up with gold rings and fancy clothes versus the shabby clothing of the poor. And so they were making distinctions on the basis of how people looked. And actually the word partiality literally means beholder of the face. It refers to a superficial, surface-only diagnosis of a person just on the basis of whatever group they belong to or what they look like. Judging on the basis of externals, which is a problem because we know that Christianity has very little to do with externals. Which is why what the early Christians were doing here was so out of place. When it comes to the poor, I mean, the truth is, if anything, God seems to favor them ahead of the rich. So what he says there in verse 5, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? I mean, you could say that that verse is the theme of the whole Bible. The kingdom of heaven turns the world upside down and refuses to refuses to pick up what falls out of its pockets, as Leonard Sweet used to say. And the church should be a reflection of the world to come and not the world as it is. And the word partiality, now here's where it gets personal as they go. You go from preaching to meddling a little bit, okay? But the word partiality shares the same root as the word partisan. And I don't think I have to tell you that we live in a time of unprecedented partisanship especially political partisanship. 
In a post-Christian culture, politics is religion. So everything becomes political. All of our conversations are framed by politics and typically framed by partisan politics. And here's what I want to say. Christians cannot be partisan because goodness is not the property of the right or the left. It transcends political parties because the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world and we can't let politics divide us or cause us to be partial towards one side or the other. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about this in different formats over the, over the fall as we head towards the election, because, but this is really, really important, and here's why. Here's where I'm burdened for this. A generation, you're, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you, but this is true. I promise. There are all kinds of studies being, being done to show this, but a generation ago, unbelieving people wouldn't come to religious services because they didn't feel like they were good enough to take part. But today, what's happened is it's been flipped on its head. Today, people reject religion because they don't see the church as being good enough. They don't, they don't see the church as being moral enough to really, you know, spend their time on. Because they see what they see as immorality among Christians because of how closely wed faith and politics have become. But, but religion that is pure... And undefiled here, we're told, is to, on the one hand, visit orphans and widows in their, in their affliction. And that sounds a lot like the priorities of the left. But it says religion that is pure and undefiled is also to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that is the kind of thing that the right is concerned about. And so Christians are people who should care deeply about abortion and a biblical sexual ethic and also justice and racial equality and caring for the poor. And the marginalized, we should be against critical theory and government overreach and any threat to freedom of religion and also systemic racism and policies that advantage the rich over the poor. Otherwise, our goodness falls short. If it's partisan, G.K. Chesterton wrote about his conversion in his book, Orthodoxy. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. Uh, and what ultimately convinced him of the truth about Christianity was the way all the different sides seemed to have a critique of Christianity and that all of the critiques seemed to in some ways contradict one another. And so he said, if this is true, that they can't all be right. So here's what he said. He said, suppose, this is the analogy he used. He said, suppose you heard about an unknown man and some people said that he was too tall and some people said that he was too short and some people said he was overweight and some people said he was thin and some people said he was white and others said that he was black. Now, one explanation would be that uh, he was a really odd person. But the other, the more likely explanation would be that he was not the wrong shape or an odd shape. The most likely explanation was that he was the right shape. And that outrageously tall men in comparison to themselves felt him to be short and that overly short men probably considered him to be tall and you get the idea. And he says, perhaps this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing. At least the normal thing, the center. Perhaps, after all, it is Christianity that is sane and all its critics that are mad. And the way you know Christianity is real is that it doesn't fit into any of our boxes. I mean, the problem with partisanship is that it says this is good and therefore this is bad. But Christianity says, no, this is good and this is good. So Chesterton, again, he said, paganism declared that virtue was in the balance. Christianity declared that it was in a conflict, the collision of two passions apparently opposite. And, of course, they were not really inconsistent. 
but they were such that it was hard to hold simultaneously. Christianity separates two seemingly contradictory ideas and then exaggerates them both, he said. And it's really profound. And so goodness, as it's defined for us here, is both and far more than it is either or. And Christians are people who talk out of both sides of their mouths because the kingdom of heaven doesn't take a side in earthly politics. And so goodness is impartial. It's always more, not less, than whatever category we're working with. That's the first thing. Expansive. we got to expand our vision. But second thing, then, how then can you become good? How can you be, be supernaturally good? Truly good, because there's a goodness that is artificial. There's Galinda the good goodness. If you're familiar with that character from Wicked. Not that. That's not what we're aiming for. We don't want that. That's gross. That's ugly. That's uglier than, than badness in some ways. True goodness. And it's a matter of two things. You have to, we're told here, hear the words that God gives and obey them unquestioningly. But then also you have to know that you're not good because you hear and obey. So on the one hand, you have to hear and obey. But in the hearing and the obeying, you have to know that the hearing and the obeying is really ultimately not what makes you good. You're not good because you do those things. So first, look here. You have to hear and obey God's words. And James is crystal clear. Be doers of the word, he says, and not hearers only there in chapter 1, verse 22. And so we're people who believe that God has authoritatively spoken into our lives, that he has given a word to us that is the rule of faith and practice. And we do not live however we feel. We do not live according to what's convenient. We live according to what God says. We're not soft on obedience. We don't say it doesn't matter, just kind of live your best life, do the best you can, whatever. No, there's a, there's a standard that we're held to, and we believe that we're people who should be striving with all that we have for that standard because God has made known to us the way of life. He has shown us what human flourishing looks like, and anything that goes against the things that he said ultimately leads to breakdown. And so we have to be hearing, and not just hearing, and then walking away from a service like this and forgetting the things that we just heard, but hearing and processing and, and implementing and, and seeking to not just listen and hear, but to obey and to make the things that God is saying to us a part of our lives. But even in the process of doing that, the trick is to know that you've got to know that as you're hearing, as you go about your life hearing and obeying, the hearing and the obeying aren't the thing that ultimately makes you good. You're not good because you, you hear and obey. There's a difference between what Tim Keller calls a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. And he has a series of sermons on that that really that changed my life. I mean, goodness is not externalism. You can be good, but from all kinds of different motives and desires. You can be good, like Glenda to feel superior to others. You can be gay, engaged in all kinds of morally virtuous behavior, but selfishly. Sin can motivate goodness. Religious people hear and obey, but for the wrong reason, not because they genuinely love God and other people. They, they have what is a morally restrained heart. They, they want to be thought of as moral and good. And that can only take you so far, but a supernaturally changed heart is something different. It has a different operating system. And the fruit of the Spirit requires a supernaturally changed heart. Look at what Paul says there. We, we included the Galatians 5 passage this week because we wanted to pick up this last bit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit are these things, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. And then look at the very end. He says, against such things there is no law. Now, what does that mean? Well, a law is a form of external moral constraint. We have laws that prohibit murder. Or for the most part, you know, or, you know, 
for the most part, work to do that. But can you imagine a law against joylessness? Now that you should have chuckled at that. Can you, what if, what, if, what if you could be prosecuted for anxiety? I'd be serving a lifetime sentence. Laws can stop behavior, certain behaviors, but they can't get inside. They can't get inside and change the heart. They can't legislate the heart. Law can help with stealing, but not with jealousy and envy. It can significantly deter rape, but not lust. And this is why religious people often appear moral and virtuous, but they're still full of pride and selfishness and joy because externally they're, they're, you know, there's, there's moral restraint that's happening, but there's not supernatural change, supernaturally being changed from the inside out. And religious people can often appear moral and virtuous and still be full of all of these ugly things. And it's the difference between moral constraint and supernatural change. But grace, so law can't do it. What can then? Well, grace and not law is what changes the heart and makes a person truly good. And what do I mean by grace? Grace is the Christian doctrine, belief, the power in Christianity that says you're loved and accepted by God but not because of the, on the basis of your moral efforts or performance, but simply because of Jesus and for his sake, solely. You're loved and accepted because of Jesus, not on the basis of anything that you do. And, and that's the truth that the Spirit has to bring home to your heart. So that the Spirit, see, the Spirit can go where the law can't go. The Spirit can bring the reality of grace into the innermost parts of your life that can make you good and loving and joyful and patient and all of these things. Not good, but proud and arrogant and condescending and riddled with anxiety and all that, but good and peaceful and patient with other people and loving and so forth. Now, come to James, and he says that the problem with trying to be good by obeying law is this. Look there at verse 10. He says, forever keeps the whole law. In other words, the person who is intent on doing good in order to be good, this person who keeps the whole law, but if you fail at one point then you become accountable for the whole thing. And what James is saying is this, is that the law was never meant to give you righteousness. It was meant to take it away. It's not supposed to make you feel like you're a good person. It's supposed to convince you that you're not so that you'll turn to Jesus for grace and become truly good. And so here's the way grace works. You have to first know that your obedience, no matter how thorough, doesn't merit you anything. It isn't up to standard. All it gets you, according to James, is judgment. So here's the message of Christianity. Your sin gets you judgment. Your badness gets you judgment. But your obedience gets you judgment too. Your goodness gets you judgment too. Unless you can accomplish absolute perfection. But if you mess up at one little point, then it's all for naught. But if you will turn away from this performance mentality, look at what it says here. If you'll turn away from that whole way of thinking about doing life, then there is a mercy. There is a mercy that can be yours. If you insist on obedience and and trying to be righteous and right with God through your obedience, then there's judgment. But if you turn away from that to grace, there's a mercy that can triumph over justice. And I heard you when we read that verse. The whole room kind of went, oh. We just kind of settled and sighed into that reality, right? Did you hear it? Did you hear it? The whole room. I mean, it's because it's so great. The idea that mercy can triumph over justice. In Dade Ortland's book, Gentleman Lowly, which we've been quoting from quite a bit here recently, it makes the case that God's truest heart is mercy. 
that what flows out of his deepest being is love and mercy, that God is just, that he righteously punishes sin, that he's a God of infinite wrath, yes, but, he quotes Thomas Goodwin, a famous Puritan pastor, who says, but his mercy, his mercy may in some respect be said to be more natural to him than all his acts of justice. Listen to this. When he exercises acts of justice, it's for a higher end. There's always something in his heart, though, against it. But when he comes to show mercy, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. Therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work. Isaiah 28, 21, mercy is his natural work. There is in God a certain reluctance in judgment. His deepest desire is for mercy, a mercy that would triumph over his justice. And of course, that takes us right to the cross, doesn't it? Because this is exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. There, God's justice was satisfied so that he could show mercy to sinners. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. Our sin and our imperfect obedience were credited to Jesus' account, and he met with the justice that was due to us so that his perfect record of righteousness might be given to you and me. So Paul says, we are saved by faith, through, by grace, through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not, not, not a result of works. And when the Spirit brings that reality of God's grace, the reality of God's grace home to your heart, he wins your heart. And that's something different. See, the spirit winning your heart is something different than just having a morally restrained, you know, life. That's a supernaturally changed heart that can in time learn to say no to selfishness and yes to obedience. But it's grace that does that, not law. And it's grace that makes you gracious. God's mercy toward you has triumphed over his judgment and when you know that then you become a person that can't help but be merciful you look around at the people around you in spiritual and physical need and your heart will just explode with mercy and you want to do everything you can to help them that's what it means to be good that's a good life that's a morally virtuous life i don't know if you've uh, seen uh the movie recently uh, the Daniel Day-Lewis movie about Abraham Lincoln was based on the book written by Doris Kearns Goodwin called Team of Rivals. It's a great biography of Lincoln. I really enjoyed the book and the movie, but the book, um, the book's title tells the story that the biography is meant, is meant to convey that uh, what, what was true of Lincoln is uh, as he became president, he chose his political opponents to be members of his cabinet, which no one, so he went, he reached across the aisle to fill out his cabinet. He didn't choose the people he liked the best. He didn't choose the cronies in his political party. He didn't, you know, he didn't choose guys who would make, you know, do favors for him or whatever. He gave jobs to the men the country most needed, even if they were across the aisle. And, and because he did that, it was an absolute disaster. Because all of the men he chose as his secretaries were lesser men, and so they constantly bickered with one another and fought. They were petty and envious, but the point the book is making is that the only thing that held it all together was the power of Lincoln's person. That he had this uncanny ability. He lived with a moral ethic, with a sense of humor that could disarm a room. Uh, he engendered um, loyalty and respect in the people that he worked with. And of course, all of this happened at the darkest time in our nation's history. And so again, the argument that, that, that Doris Kearns Goodwin is making is, is that in this, this deep crucible of suffering for our country, the entire country at that time was being held together by the force of Abraham Lincoln's goodness. 
And I would just say to you, that same kind of goodness is desperately needed again, isn't it? But here's the key. You got to know it doesn't come. It doesn't come from you. Don't think it comes from you. It comes through you if you believe. But it doesn't come from you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work. It's what God has to cultivate in us. And so we then should be led to prayer that he would do just that. And so would you pray with me as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning? And so, Father, we do ask that. We, we, feel, we feel the burden of that uh, in our nation. We feel the burden of being people who could be leaders, who could, who could live uh, such a beautiful life that in this time of great need uh, that we're going through as a culture, that we would hold out hope, joy, and peace to people, that we would be salt and light full of beautiful works that would cause others to see and to believe and to give glory to you. We know that you have us in this world to be image bearers. You've made us as image bearers so that when people look at us, they would see you. They would think of you. They would come to know what you're like. And we confess all the ways that we've failed in that task. And we ask that you renew us this morning. That you... um, that you break in through the service of our lives into the deep places and supernaturally change us from the inside out that we might people bearing fruit that glorifies you and honors you. We ask all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Listen to the prophet Zechariah. I was reminded of this verse. He says this, On that day of salvation, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Listen, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Amen? That's what these words mean. That as you go, you don't go alone. You go with the promise that God is going before you. And great is his goodness and great is his beauty to beautify you in all the things that he calls you to do. And so receive these words and go in the power that is promised to all those who put their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit who has been given to produce this fruit in us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.